Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we have on Christopher Goes, the founder of Anoma. This is one I've been very excited to talk about for quite some time. Chris has as deep a context about privacy and crypto as anybody I know. He's contributed to projects like Zcash and Tendermint and Cosmos in the past. Then he's brought those pieces of background to co-found Anoma. Today, we'll be talking about the state of privacy in crypto and really the history of it. The evolution of privacy since 2017 is stark and quite an interesting case study. Then we'll chat about how historical approaches compare to what Chris is working on today with Anoma. And we'll go from there. I think this will be a fun conversation. Chris is a great guy, and I'm excited to welcome him formally to the podcast. So welcome, Chris. Great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Chris, I think maybe just to give the audience a little bit of context, could you just give a quick summary of your background in crypto and the different orgs and projects you've contributed to and looked at? So yeah, my name is Christopher. I think I'm on this podcast because I'm a co-founder of the Enoma Project, mostly. So if that's not true, then hopefully I'll be able to answer the questions anyways. But I now work on Enoma, which I've done for two years. Before that, I worked primarily on the Cosmos project on the IBC protocol. Before that, I did some brief forays into learning Solidity, which resulted in Wyvern, ended up being used by OpenSea for a while, and wrote a block explorer for Zcash, which is my only claim to fame as far as actually contributing to Zcash, although I've used it. And even before that, once in high school when I was broke and didn't have a credit card, but had cheap unmetered org and electricity, I ran some RTX 4870 GPUs to mine Bitcoins. Unfortunately, I didn't keep them, but maybe that's a good thing, all things considered. That's about it. I did not know about the high school mining history. It's quite fascinating. What was the story there? I think it's pretty mundane. I was a broke, bored, internet curious high schooler with no advanced knowledge of programming, really, but I just like tinkering with things. My parents were kind or lazy enough not to meter the electricity that I was using in my room. Plus, Oregon Electro is really cheap. It's mostly hydropower. And I you know, had enough allowance saved up to buy some... I think I wanted to rent a VPS or something. So I actually wanted digital cash, and I couldn't get a bank account because I was 15, 14, or something like this. And I just wanted to rent a VPS to play around with and I found out about Bitcoin probably by reading Slashdot or something like this, downloaded it, played around with it. I actually did rent a VPS with Bitcoin for a while. There was a company called BitVPS, I think. And I had enough allowance to buy some GPUs. So I bought a few used, I think back then it was still ATI, a few used ATI GPUs and ran. There was some like mining distribution of Linux, maybe it was called. B-A-M-T or something like this. It's been years since I've used it. But yeah, I just set up a miner. was not that exciting in terms of software architecture or anything, but it was cool. Plus, there were all these like early, not DeFi, but early alternative financial experiments being conducted. There was the global Bitcoin stock exchange, which I mean, if DeFi is an interesting question of legal theory. The global Bitcoin stock exchange was just a blatant violation of all securities laws on the planet. But at that point, Bitcoin was sufficiently imaginary that nobody cared. And it was 
very interesting to participate in those kinds of early experiments. You mentioned you had Zcash as a project you've been passionate about and, and contributor to in the past, which I think brings me to the question of, could you walk us through maybe the past few years, five, six years of crypto privacy in general? Because if I zoom back to 2017, the discussion was really limited to two projects, Monero and Zcash. And then there was all this conflict and debate around which protocol security trade-offs made more sense. Zcash is shielded transaction and zero-knowledge proof approach versus Monero's, I believe it was ring signatures. And then in 2020 came, I think, Mimblewimble and, and Grin became a prominent privacy narrative, which I don't think has played out. And there's been so much evolution since then. But could you just, again, break down from a high level what you think the different eras of crypto privacy are? To me, at least, it makes sense to characterize privacy in crypto as a sequence of three phases. The first phase, which I think is over, is the phase where privacy was a feature. The second phase, which I think is the phase we're currently in and will be in for a little while, is a phase where privacy is a service. And the third phase is the one I hope we'll be in because otherwise we're screwed but also because it will be nice from user experience perspective, is the phase where privacy is default. Let me talk a little bit about each of these phases. So at first, there was Zcash and Monero. Both are projects with really cool cryptography, but I especially want to highlight Zcash because one, it has a sort of top-notch privacy model that has been used by basically every serious project since. And two, because it is just an amazing achievement to deploy cryptography like that. Zcash deployed like theory. ZK PCPs, kind of the theoretical basis behind ZK Starks and Starks and all of this nice ZK crypto we now actually have in many practical projects was in before Zcash launch, really like just theory. There were like some papers about it. Someone had, in most, I think, you know, there was like some academic implementation of one of the protocols, but it was not in any real sense used. And Zcash had both the understanding of the cryptography and the kind of foresight to envision what it could do in a distributed ledger context. And they actually deployed it. That was an amazing achievement. That was the era where assets were tied to blockchains. Everything was patterned after Bitcoin, which is both an asset and a blockchain, and not really Bitcoin. Eh, there were colored coins, but Bitcoin has never supported other assets in a real enough way to matter wasn't interoperable. You know, there was no blockchain interoperability back then. In that first era where privacy was a feature, people considered assets and blockchains as like, well, different assets are going to have different privacy properties based on what blockchain they're running on. And we should look at those privacy properties and see if we like them or not and see what the other trade-offs are and see if we like the monetary policy of the asset and if we feel like the distribution of the asset was fair and stuff like this. So in other words, Privacy and assets were coupled in this early era. And I think people also, you know, in that era, especially just with kind of the prerogative set by Bitcoin, maybe considered assets as like, in some sense, an investment class or as thought that maybe assets were going to do better or worse based on what kind of privacy properties they provided. Blockchains are competing on features and different privacy coins, quote unquote. I don't like that term, but I think people often used it then because this was the understanding at the time. Different privacy coins had different privacy models and these have trade-offs. 
and we would sort of compare them on that basis. And I think that era basically ended with Tornado Cash. And the era that started with Tornado Cash was the era, which we're still in, of privacy as a service. Namada is a step in this era. In the era of privacy as a service, privacy is a feature provided by, either in the case of Tornado Cash, smart contracts, or in the case of Namada, blockchains, but particularly smart contracts or blockchains, which are interoperable and allow many assets, pretty much permissionlessly any asset, to use them. So in this era of privacy as a service, most assets still are not private and most blockchains still are not private, but they're like places in the interchain or multi-chain landscape where privacy is available as a service for assets and users who wish to use it. And in this phase, there will be still different kind of privacy as a service options. Tornado Cash and Namada, or if someone makes a ring signature version that's multi-chain compatible or something, I guess there could be other options for privacy as a service, but people will still be kind of moving their assets to and from those chains or holding them on those chains, perhaps when they want privacy or when they think that they want privacy. Privacy is not a default at the moment. Most blockchains are still transparent. Most assets are held transparently. That's not going to change immediately. But I think it will and should change eventually. I think the third era will be one where privacy is a default. Transparent blockchains are just unsustainable. Not only can the apparatus of the surveillance state surveil them and prosecute people or just conduct sort of generic dragnet surveillance of the kind that has been extensively documented in Trisana Zuboff's book in some recent articles on de-anonymizing innocent users who have done nothing wrong, who no one had a specific reason to suspect had done anything anyways. It's just cheap dragnet surveillance. It's the same problem as unencrypted internet traffic. So I think transparent blockchains will go away. It will be painful. Many of us have done things on transparent blockchains, which may prove to have been a mistake, but here we are. Hopefully it's not too bad to recover at this point. And I think the third era will be one where privacy is a default. It's important here to characterize what privacy actually means in this context. Personally, I'm actually not a fan of the word privacy. I had a few great discussions about this, including with Suko, which has led to my thinking here. But I think privacy is kind of a misleading word for two reasons. One, I think it's a misleading word from the technical sense or from the technical design perspective, because privacy describes a property of a specific interaction with regards to a specific user. No system is private to everybody. A system that's private to everybody all of the time would be completely useless. <laughs> At the very least, if you're paying someone, you want them to know that you've paid them. Otherwise, what is the point? In fact, no systems are private in this sense. Really, systems just differ in whether or not information disclosure is consensual. When a transparent blockchain information disclosure is really not consensual, I mean, you can choose to use the system or not. But if you choose to use the system at all, your data is public to everyone. You don't have any kind of control over this. All the way now, on the other end of the spectrum is a system like Zcash or Nomada. And in Zcash or Nomada, or projects building on similar zero-knowledge foundations, Disclosure is always a choice. So this doesn't really mean that these systems are private. I mean, everyone could still publish all of their viewing keys and then the systems would be public. That's possible. But it means that whether or not information is disclosed is a choice made by the users of the system. So privacy is really all about consent and all about giving users the choice of who they disclose their data to. But the word privacy doesn't really convey that. So from the systems design perspective, I think it's a little bit misleading. I think it's also misleading from a broader social perspective, because privacy describes 
what seems like kind of a very technical property. Why do you want privacy if you've got nothing to hide, et cetera, et cetera. But what we really want out of our social systems is resilience and minority protection and the ability for people to act without worrying about what everyone else in the world thinks. We want freedom, in other words. And privacy is, to me at least, is really just a tool for enabling freedom. It's like a way to design systems that preserve freedom. I think it's hard to communicate the word privacy outside of blockchain, crypto, or anarchist land, which is not the whole world, let's be honest, just because privacy doesn't necessarily connote to most people what it is that we really want, which I think is freedom and flourishing and a diverse and free society. But in this third era, I think, and I hope that we'll move to a world where privacy is a default. In other words, one where users are doing things on distributed ledgers and they're probably disclosing the data to the person who they're paying by default in the user interface, but they're not disclosing it to anyone else by default. And if they want to, they can. If they want to disclose it to their friend to prove that they did something, they can. If they want to disclose it to a regulatory body to prove that they were in compliance with some law, they can do that too. That's the world where privacy is a default. And it just means that by default, users are safe and they can choose who to disclose to and when to disclose what. Really great breakdown. On the last point about a future world that's privacy by default and people can selectively reveal certain information. One, if I were to maybe just play devil's advocate, if there's the ability for certain amounts of information to be revealed, would law enforcement pressure and other things result in flaws or attack vectors for these systems? I'm sure that's something that's been brought up many times, but that's my immediate question. I mean, I think the discussion of law enforcement and a legal system employed by nation states and privacy technology has been fraught, honestly, with, from my perspective, what are often just honest misunderstandings. I think people don't always understand what the technology does, which is very reasonable. It's very new. And I think also people using the technology are often upset with things the government has done, which is also very reasonable. I'm also upset with some of those things. But they maybe also describe things in a way which make things seem more oppositional than they really are. To me, privacy technology, one is like, is basically orthogonal to the law in the sense that private technologies or privacy preserving technologies like Zcash, Nomada, Noma, Alio, and many others can never prevent a user from being able to disclose information they want to disclose. It is impossible. Nothing you can do will prevent this. If I am the one who holds Zcash or holds assets on the matter or something like this, and I want to share that information with another party, I can. The protocol doesn't have to do anything and it cannot prevent this. It can make providing certain kinds of proofs easier or harder. There are like some engineering distinctions, but at the broad architectural level, this is not actually a choice that the protocol designer makes. It's a choice that the user makes. The only choice that the protocol designer makes is whether to make it possible to keep data private. You could in a sense, by deploying transparent blockchains or transparent blockchains, remove choice from users. And privacy-preserving technology just brings that choice back. We can't restrict the ability of people to share information that they want to share. Also, states make laws, and at least at the moment, those laws govern what is legal or not legal in their jurisdiction. And privacy technology doesn't change this, to be honest, as in if the government wants to make a law that says that you must disclose XYZ information to XYZ parties, they can make that law. I'm not saying it's good, but it's a separate question. 
all potential technologies are compatible with, in fact, disclosing specific information to specific parties. If a government makes a law that says you must disclose XYZ information to this specific federal bureaucracy, individuals in that country have the choice of whether or not to comply with that law. But really, it has nothing to do with the protocol. The protocol can, at most, make it possible for things to be private by default, but still optionally disclosable. And that is compatible with, in fact, all possible laws, as far as I can see. I think this tension is, in some sense, illusory. Separately, as like a citizen of a democracy, I think that we should strive for a balance of, I think dragnet surveillance should be illegal. As in, I think that perhaps it's reasonable to grant the state some ability where they have specific information to investigate specific things, but I don't think it's wise as a society to accept an equilibrium of surveillance by default. For me, that's a choice about how I would vote, but it is orthogonal to the protocol because all protocols are compatible with all laws. I think there could be kind of the impression of a dialectic here. I'm not sure that it's real. That's a good answer and helpful, to, I think, to hear your thinking clearly laid out. Let me say one more thing. Please. Just while it's on the top of my head. I mean, I do think for protocol designers, which is a perspective that I often take, I think there is what you might call an ethical choice or transparent blockchains, for example. And I'm not trying to criticize anyone specific here. I think it was hard to foresee all of this in advance. But transparent blockchains have ended up being a surveillance nightmare. In other words, they make dragnet surveillance very easy. And the fact that we have deployed them in this way and could use them in this way I mean, frankly, it makes it very easy for anyone to surveil the blockchain. They're like products which sell this thing as a service. Follow the wallets of your favorite Instagram influencers or whatever. But in other words, technologies, they can't change what laws are possible. But technologies can be more or less compatible with dragnet surveillance by default. And I definitely think that we should build technologies that are less compatible with dragnet surveillance by default. But I don't think that this is unique to blockchain protocols. It's also true of Signal. It's a technology that is at least when people choose to use it, and many people choose to use it, including many people in the government. Signal is a technology that tries to prevent dragnet surveillance by default for the people using it. It's still possible for the government to like get your phone if you're using Signal. If they get your physical phone, they can get the data for the most part, especially if it's in memory or whatever. But the dragnet wiretap style surveillance, which is possible with unencrypted internet communications and transparent blockchains, it doesn't lead to good social equilibrium. So I think that's an important axis of trade-offs. Basically, what you're saying that Satoshi is an NSA plant and Bitcoin is a giant dragnet planted by an NSA. No comment. <laughs> no comment. Where do you see your project fitting in in that timeline? Do you see it as part of phase two, like privacy as a service? Or do you see it as part of phase three, which is privacy by default? How would you place your own interests and reach on that spectrum. For me, Namada is what we envision as a contribution to the next steps of phase two, and Anoma is a vision for what it will take to achieve phase three. Namada is designed to be a shielded pool that supports multiple assets and the same privacy set, and it is as interoperable with as many ecosystems as possible, basically. Nomada at launch will support the Cosmos ecosystem and the Ethereum ecosystem. It will have direct bridges to both of those. And over time, we hope to have, for example, the Zcash bridge, you know, even bridges to other systems like Avalanche. I mean, privacy loves company. The more assets that we can give privacy to, the more privacy can become normalized and something people expect and even require of the protocols which they use and learn to require. And the more we can 
just share privacy amongst assets, which provides a public good benefit and that everyone has more privacy, the better. So Nomada aims to offer that, but it, it is still privacy as a service. As in Nomada is a blockchain that offers a multi-asset shielded pool and the requisite proof of stake security and all of the basic features, but no programmability or no general purpose programmability. So there will still be many parts of the blockchain ecosystem which want general purpose programmability. And Nomada also doesn't really support asset issuance and stuff like this. So other protocols which want to do asset issuance and many other things which Nomada doesn't support and doesn't intend to. We think that that logic will still live separately for a long time. Anoma aims to provide phase three. And in order to provide phase three, we think that we need to bring privacy technology all the way to the application architecture that blockchain applications are moving towards. Phase three is not going to happen tomorrow. It's maybe a few years in the future. Of course, these things are gradual, but that's speaking broadly. So in order to get that right, we don't actually needs to build privacy for like current dApps in a certain sense. We need to build privacy for the dApps that are going to exist in two years. We need to like predict the future trajectory of the system and maneuver the privacy technology, as I prefer to call it, freedom-preserving information flow control technology to the point where it can service the needs that those applications are going to have. And this is what we try to do with Anoma. So in particular, Anoma separates the kind of feature set, which we think blockchain applications need, into two phases, what we call capital party discovery and settlement. And settlement is the thing which blockchains typically do, where you have a transaction that you've already agreed to and you want to order it and execute it, read some state changes. Capital party discovery is the thing that, that happens first in order to get to a transaction when you have multiple parties who need to agree on what the transaction is. So if you think of different kinds of exchange or multi-party interactions, this could be trading X for Y, this could be booking a car in some kind of decentralized Uber or Air, booking a house in decentralized Airbnb. There are multiple parties, they have different preferences, and you typically want to find counterparties who have compatible preferences such that together, you know, if someone has a house, you get the house, they get the money, date ranges match, etc. Together, all of your preferences are satisfied. And in Anoma, we want to also support doing this privately, because even if you do private settlement, if all of the counterparty discovery is public, then, well, you actually haven't gained that much privacy. The adversary is always going to go after the weakest link. So we try to design Anoma for that future world. Anoma may have many blockchains. In fact, it can have all the blockchains you want whenever you want them. It like creates blockchains on demand, but it is not itself a blockchain. Blockchains are data structures. Anoma is a protocol and like an architecture of protocol. Protocol architecture, we like to call it. But what that means specifically is that Anoma is purposely agnostic of security choices. As in, you can use Anoma in whatever way you want to as a user. We expect that users are going to have different security preferences, just like they have different asset preferences. Different users trust different validators. They want to operate in different jurisdictions. They have different latency constraints. They have all of these different, what we call heterogeneous security preferences. And Anoma is a protocol that's designed to properly abstract over all of these so that different users with different security preferences can still use the same protocol. It's a little bit similar to Cosmos in the sense that both Cosmos and Anoma envision a world of what I like to call polycentric pluralism, where there are going to be many different domains operated by different people who want to have you know, self-sovereign control of their own domain, but who also want to interoperate with other folks you know, where they agree in other domains where they agree. What Anoma tries to do that Cosmos doesn't it's two things. One, Anoma standardizes all of the protocol. So Cosmos standardizes 
Tendermint and IBC, but then it leaves state machines up to the application developer. And I think that's a valuable choice for giving application developers a lot of freedom. But I also think that many blockchain applications, when you generalize the application framework, really need the same thing. They need a way to do counterparty discovery and a way to do settlement. They need privacy. They need composability. These things are possible to generalize. And if you standardize the protocol for applications, it becomes easy for applications in state to move across domains, which is otherwise very difficult if the protocols are not standardized. So for this reason, Unoma standardizes all the protocols. Just to double click on that while we're on the topic, it sounds to me like you can think of the analogy would be Tendermint and IBC is to Atom or Osmosis or whatever, as Anoma is to Nomada. Maybe it's not an exact analogy, but that's the mental model that listeners should think about. In terms of like Anoma is the framework, Nomada is the first implementation. That's right. I mean, Nomada purposefully makes different choices in some ways. For example, Nomada uses Tendermint, Anoma will not use Tendermint. And Nomada makes those choices on the basis of pragmatism, because Sonoma is mostly designed, but it's not fully implemented yet. People need privacy now, and I think I want it personally, and there seems to be a lot of demand. And the more privacy we can bring to more assets sooner, the rosier the future looks in terms of having freedom, privacy-preserving blockchain ecosystem. So Nomada cares about providing that now, which means that Nomada is willing to make pragmatic trade-offs. And we think that making those trade-offs is both essential for Nomada to work now and also means that Nomada alone doesn't solve all of the long-term problems. Nomada alone is not sufficient to create this world of privacy by default. Anoma doesn't operate under those design constraints, which also means that it has longer timelines. Anoma is willing to do things uh, like Architect Taiga, this sort of private counterparty discovery and settlement system that we now have a prototype of, but it's still not something we would be comfortable deploying the next few months, it will need a lot of audits and further work. They kind of split the difference between these two worlds in that sense. The Tendermint IBC versus Cosmos Hub Atom analogy is roughly accurate, but is not exact. There are larger protocol differences also between Nevada and Renoma, and they could change over time. But we make those trade-offs to allow for both of these worlds. Making things a little bit more tactical, I think you guys have put out a lot of recent press and posts about Nomada, and it seems like there's a big push around it at the moment. How do you think about go-to-market, really, and bringing a privacy, privacy-first privacy chain to market? Because it's a very interesting question, because there's some similarities to other L1s or all the L2s built on Ethereum, but there's also some, some notable differences as well. So I'm curious how you think about it and maybe compare how you guys think about scaling and growing Nomada compared to, say, how, again, pick your alt L1, whether it's Avalanche or Sauna, like so how someone like them would think about scaling. Let me answer in two parts. One, just as kind of a clarification on the relation between these problems. Nomada is a product. It's not a platform. Avalanche or Solana or often the sort of alt L1s, especially the ones that launched in the kind of era a few years ago when everyone was thinking about different approaches to scaling blockchains, and both Avalanche and Solana in this category. Those were platforms and are platforms, as in that they have 
a base layer that has some kind of smart contract capability or some kind of programmability, and then they have a bunch of developers building applications on top of that. That same model as Ethereum started with initially, at least. Nomad is not this. I mean, you can do a few things with the converse circuit, but for the most part, we are not trying to recruit developers to build more smart contract applications on Nomada, which doesn't support general purpose smart contracts anyways. We do think and hope that developers will build different interfaces, but mostly Nomada's product is just private transfers. It's multi-asset private transfers with one important twist, which brings me to the next part, which is that Nomada tries to treat privacy as what we think it is, which is a public good, in the sense that privacy is something that is kind of like one person can produce privacy and everyone gets more privacy. It's not scarce. And when you using it, it's in some certain specific senses, you could consider it excludable. But for the most part, it's non-rivalrous and non-excludable. If I make a private transaction and you are also holding your assets in the same domain, I get privacy from you holding your assets privately. You get privacy from me holding my assets privately, right? It's win-win. And we think that properly recognizing that nature also requires that we think also about the costs. Private transactions can be slightly more expensive. They require CKPs. They require users to use wallets, which have to make zero knowledge proofs. There's some costs. And in particular, what we want to do is properly calibrate the economics so that we subsidize privacy because it's a public good. Think about many users are often making choices where like, it's actually also very hard to reason about for this individual transaction, do I want privacy or not? Let's imagine that we had a system where like, privacy cost a little bit more. And in some sense, in the fundamental computational economics, it does. So if we have a system where privacy costs a little bit more, then every user for every transaction has to make the choice of whether privacy is worth a little bit more to them for that specific transaction. And because privacy is a public good, those choices will lead to like just a pretty bad social welfare outcome because users only consider the benefit to them but them transacting privately also brings benefits to everybody else. So what Nomada tries to do is basically at least approximate those benefits which everybody else is getting and give some of them back to the user, which will then consequently give users a reason to do private transactions, which then brings more privacy to everybody else. So that's kind of the basis. And we have this shielded pool reward system, which you can learn more about on the Nomada blog, which allows us to, or allows Nomada to pay out basically a privacy yield or some rewards in NAM to people just for holding assets in the privacy side because they're generating privacy or so to speak for everybody else. I want to double click on the public goods aspect because I think that's such an important part of crypto protocols. A lot of projects talk about it, public goods. I think some of it is honestly PR for earning goodwill and that's important. I feel like for privacy and I feel like for Nomada, it's doubly important because these features get more valuable if there's mutual buy-in from the broader community. It's not like trying to enable like brand new DeFi apps or gaming apps or something. like That's less public goods than, again, going after the simple use case of private transacting. To me, it's just like such a major overlap. So... I just love to see the focus on public goods. And how do you think about public goods and the intersection of Nomada, Anoma, and public goods? For Nomada, I think we think about public goods in two primary ways. The first way is within Nomada, and the second way is 
for NMADA in relation to the rest of the world. So within NMADA, we think about public goods in this shield of set rewards fashion, as in how do we align the incentives of individuals using NMADA, choosing whether or not to transact privately and to hold their assets on NMADA and provide privacy to other users and the other users who are getting benefits from that privacy. So in other words, how do we align incentives to treat privacy as public good, which it is, within NMADA? I think that question is critical. The tricky task always of the economic systems designer is to align the private incentive and the public welfare. If you do that, you've got a good system. But that doesn't answer the question of NMADA in relation to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world provides, well, it provides a lot of public goods, which NMADA definitely benefits from. And we want to at least do our part to create good precedent for recognizing and materially compensating those benefits. Because if we do that, the whole blockchain ecosystem will be able to coordinate more efficiently. So in particular, we want, as part of launching Nomada, to kind of establish, I'm just going to call them mutual credit relationships between blockchains. And initially, because we're only proposing things, users of Nomada, we build software and we make proposals, but it is ultimately up to people to choose what software they want to run and whether they like the rules or not. We're just proposing some rules as an option. But as part of the rules that we're proposing, we want to include contributions from Nomada to different overlapping ecosystems, such as parts of Zcash ecosystem, Cosmos ecosystem, Ethereum ecosystem. And we think that often these relations really could start to look like mutual credit between blockchains, as in different blockchains and assets contribute some of their, in the case of Nomada, it's NAM, the staking token, to other chains and other communities, particularly to fund projects of joint interest and to establish a kind of incentive alignment between the two groups. And we hope that initially these will be just proposals for Nomada to do something because we can only, we're part of the Nomada community and we can contribute to that consensus. But in the future, we hope that they might also become reciprocal, that other blockchains and communities might also choose to send some amount of inflation to their public goods. We want to reach the equilibrium state where public goods funding is expected and where everyone tries to do it. And that has to be free. I probably don't want to go all the way into the mechanism design, but Public goods funding really, in some ways, what distinguishes public goods from private goods typically is also that consumption of public goods is not possible to easily measure. With a private good, because it's rivalrous and excludable, when whatever makes it rivalrous and excludable, like a sandwich being only eatable by one person, you can also typically use to measure who is eating the sandwich and charge them for it. Private goods are easy to charge for. This is part of why our system, our current economic system, is so optimized to fund private goods because they're easy to charge for. But public goods are typically not because you don't know who's using them and you can't prevent them from using it and you also can't measure whether or not they are typically. So in other words, the people who are benefiting from the public goods have to be the ones making the decision about what public goods are beneficial to them and their protocol and their communities and stuff they care about in the world. And that requires kind of a change in social equilibrium. We can only do a little bit, but hopefully it helps towards starting to make this world a reality. I think directing inflation towards public goods and towards anything other than just like towards a community treasure, I think is, frankly, I think it's a newish concept. Aside from Nomada and potentially optimism, and I think Gitcoin, most projects just send tail emission or inflation to the security keepers, so the validators or the miners, or to the community treasury. And it's nice to see the deliberate choice of, 
hey, let's allocate parts of it for the sake of public goods. I hope that Namada is really just a part of a broader movement in that sense. And I also think that still, I think often it's easy to operate in this conception of a zero-sum world where if funding is going to public goods and it's not going to stakers or something, or then it's making the token price go down or whatever. It's not so much that I think this is ethically wrong or something. I actually just think that it's false in the sense that if you properly compensate public goods, everyone does better because the people who are holding assets, I mean, maybe they get like slightly less of a percentage of the asset, but if the network as a whole is more valuable, typically they care about the product. And if the network as a whole is more valuable, the network as a whole will be more valuable if the public goods are properly funded. One reason, for example, there are many parts of blockchains which are very well funded at the moment, like protocol development and validators in many parts which are not well-funded, like interfaces and education and in some ways, you know, good sort of go-to-market development and properly funding those things, even though they can't be used to launch assets, which is why the protocols are well-funded, but properly funding those things as public goods is like necessary for any of these systems to work at all and necessary for everyone using them and holding stake in them to benefit in the long term. So I think that it's a win-win, at least in many ways, as possible. It's not a zero-sum game. I think the recent... Zcash Nomada proposal is obviously the most direct example of a proposal. To share some context for listeners, Christopher and his team put up a proposal on the Zcash forums to fund public goods through Zcash and build a bridge between Zcash and Nomada. If the proposal passes, Nomada would connect to Cosmos through IBC, Ethereum, and Zcash. I think that's really cool. Could you talk a little bit more about the bridging aspect and future plans around it? I'm a little bit pedantic about this aspect, but I want to make sure we're communicating clearly. In this case, we're making a proposal to the public. Zcash doesn't have a formal governance mechanism. It has a lot of, uh, very cool actually, but it doesn't have coin voting. In this case, there's no way for us to exactly measure what the Zcash community says. What we're trying to do instead is more something like rhetoric. We're trying to propose a possible future and ask for comments. That's why it's phrased as a request for comment and see whether people like it. And maybe people don't read it and don't know about it. And then we can't know what they think. But at least the people who read it know about it and respond on the forums. There's a great forums discussion thread and people have asked a lot of great questions and offered different suggestions already. People can let us know what they think and we can use that to inform what kind of software we develop and how we, how we sort of outline potential ways of deploying it. But ultimately, it's up to people. People choose to run software. We don't choose whether people run software. We just choose what software to publish. Basically, it's all speech. And we're maybe trying to convince people at the most that we have a proposal. We've thought about this thing. We think it would be cool if these communities work together. Here's why we want to compensate Zcash both materially and spiritually for what they've done, without which Nomada or basically any of the CK projects which currently exist wouldn't, and without which I think privacy technology, the conversation in the public could have already taken a much worse turn, if not for Zcash. So their efforts are just so critical in my view. And we want to try and, let's say, propose a better public goods accounting that includes the worth of these efforts. It's impossible to measure these things in some sense, but at least gestures in the right direction, I would say that way. So really, it's just a proposal for who to give credit to in our system of world economics, and specifically in the areas of Mata and Zcash. If people decide to run the software, 
then Nomada would send some inflation to a grants pool for Zcash. It could, in the future, be controlled by the Zcash Sustainability Fund, if that's implemented. And various parties, including potentially us and, and other folks who've been talking to Axlar, or Electric Coin Company, and potential grant recipients would collaborate to build a bridge between Nomada and Zcash. And there's a forum post that describes roughly what we think the architecture for that would look like. It would allow Zcashers to transfer their ZEC over to Nomada, to use it on Nomada in the Cosmos and Ethereum ecosystems, and it would allow, in the future of Zcash supports as ZSAs, Zcash shielded assets, it would allow people to send their assets to Zcash potentially. It's up to what the Zcash community, especially, and also what the Nomada community decide, just a proposal. And we propose other kind of areas of research collaboration, and we share a lot, at least I think, that Zcash community and Nomada community are potentially, if they were a Venn diagram, there would be a lot of overlap. There are a lot of interests and philosophical goals and kind of even specific technical strategies like using zero-knowledge proofs that are shared between the communities. And this proposal is in part a way to kind of recognize that overlap in the Venn diagram and propose ways to align the financial or the kind of measured flows of value with the kind of real flows that we think in many ways just already exist. Super helpful breakdown, I think, of the philosophy behind the proposal and I think the overall messaging, its tone. Any other areas you want to talk about in terms of Nomada and Noma and privacy specifically? I have maybe a handful of other things like Cosmos stuff, but happy to jam a little bit more if there's anything specifically here we should keep covering. I mean, I think it's still very early. Maybe we're in the middle or even towards the slightly earlier end that at least a third through, I don't know, let's say we're a third through the privacy as a service stage. That's too specific, but we're in the middle of the privacy as a service <laughs> stage. And I think there are many things left to play out. I'm also excited to, you know, this proposal concerns specifically Zcash, but I'm also very excited about other privacy projects, particularly Penumbra, Alio, Aztec. I'm sure there are others that I'm less familiar with, but they're also excellent. In some ways, it's easy to zoom in too far oh, how is this blockchain different from this other blockchain? I love having those debates, but they are irrelevant to what will happen in like world history. They're just completely irrelevant. There are like five teams in the world. Maybe there are seven teams in the world building credible zero-knowledge blockchains. And as far as I'm concerned, we should all be allies. We are not fighting each other. And there's plenty of pie to, to share as long as we do a good job. And really all that matters is we succeed at all in building privacy-preserving consent, freedom-preserving technology that is both communicated correctly to and appreciated by and compatible with the needs of a broad public audience. So whatever we can do to move in that direction, I think is worth doing. Very well said. Yeah, I think privacy is no simple thing to solve for and address, and you definitely need buy-in and contributors from many different places and ecosystems and backgrounds. So totally aligned there. I guess we have a little bit of time left. Cosmos is something that I like talking about on this podcast sometimes. You've previously been a contributor at Tendermint. So obviously working a lot, paying attention to Cosmos today. What's your take on the current state of Cosmos overall in the past few years? I think there's a lot of hype around app chains and the idea of app chains. What's one area that Cosmos can do better on as an ecosystem? It's important in analysis and critique to distinguish between 
the protocols and the people. I think a Supreme Court's justice said something similar. At least personally, I want to be very critical of protocols. I think we should all be very critical of protocols. Most protocols are bad. They're really bad. Protocols should be critiqued vociferously. But people, I think, are often trying to do the right thing. And many of the Cosmos people are dear friends. And as a whole, there could be difficulties, but I still very much consider myself a part of and enjoy contributing to that ecosystem. As a technology stack and a protocol stack, I think the current Cosmos offerings that are broadly deployed, mostly tender with the Cosmos SDK and IBC, do a lot of things well. They have a lot of modularity, at least from a large scale perspective, and freedom provided to application developers, and they allow for different security models. And we see that in practice. There are 60 different chains, I think, using IBC, or using it actively at least, and they have different validator sets and it works. And despite IBC is a distributed protocol, different versions of it are running on different blockchains, despite all that complexity as a whole, the whole system has worked pretty well. IBC has not had any serious bugs in production in several years, which is an amazing feat. Credit for that to the the engineering team, especially. But I think the Cosmos stack maybe does not offer some things that people definitely do want. One of the things that it doesn't offer is privacy. Building privacy is quite difficult, and it just takes time. Nomada has privacy that uses part of the Cosmos stack, uses Tendermint, but also needs a custom state machine and needs circuit. Penumbra, similarly, the state machine basically has to be rewritten from scratch to support privacy. In some sense, it is coming, but it doesn't exist yet, and neither Nomada nor Penumbra have sort of general purpose programmable privacy. I definitely think that people do want that in a way that they can develop applications on top of. I also think that the Cosmos... This isn't really a fault. It's just that we have more perspective now, but that in retrospect, I think it makes sense to standardize things and modularize the layers of the protocol in a different way than Cosmos has done. In particular, the way Tendermint works is pretty monolithic, as in it's very difficult. Tendermint is a framework, the Cosmos is decay as well. It's worth articulating the difference between a framework and a library. So a framework kind of encapsulates applications and applications run within the framework. They're sort of surrounded by it and they have to provide the things that the framework tells them to provide and the framework kind of does everything for them. I mean, it has the advantage of providing a lot of guardrails for developers. So for example, Ruby on Rails is like a framework in this way and it sort of does all the complex parts in a very specific way such that developers only kind of do the at least what they view is the easy parts. But the disadvantage of framework and compared to libraries, and libraries are driven by the application. So with a library, you import different parts of code or different modules and hook them together whatever way you want. But it's always up to the application to kind of choose how to structure everything versus a framework which makes the structuring decisions for you. Tendermint and the Cosmos SDK are mostly written as frameworks, not libraries. And I think this was the wrong decision or at least it doesn't match what people seem to want, both in the sense that it makes it very hard to work within those code bases because they're kind of monolithic, and that it's difficult for application developers and blockchain operators who want to change parts of how the systems work to do it because they aren't cleanly divisible into small parts. So if you want to change some key part of Tendermint, you kind of have to like fork the whole code base But if it were written as a library, you could import the parts that you want and just implement the part that you want to do differently, and everything would be happily ever after, and you don't need to fork. But we see that all these projects have to fork. Celestia has to fork Tendermint. For a while, we had to fork Tendermint, although I think we're going to not need to for Nomada. But 
who else? So all these projects which are trying to build fast DEXs, changing the mempool or something, they have to fork Tendermint. Those kind of software structuring decisions may seem minor, but I think they make a large difference in how development of the ecosystem plays out in the long term. And I definitely think that whether you want to call them libraries or modular blockchains or cleanly separable application components or denotational design, great talk by Cornell Elliott, but there are a lot of words for the same thing. But I think this structuring software in a modular sort of library-centric way where the applications and really the users are making the decisions as to how it should all run and just picking and choosing the parts which they want is the best way to satisfy the kind of very diverse wants and needs of a diverse application and user and developer ecosystem. And we see that play out, what kind of happens to these different software projects. And I think it's possible now with the benefit of hindsight to structure things in a more modular way than Tenement and the Cosmos SDK have done. So that isn't to say those improvements can't be brought back to the Cosmos ecosystem in terms of assets and communities. I think that they absolutely should be. And we aim to offer what we do as well for consideration of people who are using different Cosmos technologies currently. But I do think that the protocols could be improved in these ways. Really insightful answer. And to go on the other end of the question, what's something in Cosmos that you're really excited about? It could be a project, it could be a theme, it could be a idea. It can't be privacy specific. Right. Okay. Everything else is... (laughs) Everything else. That's the only qualification. Within the Cosmos ecosystem, I'm very excited about privacy, but that one's disqualified. I'm excited about moving towards a more modular stack. I think in some ways that is happening. When I talk to Celestia, for example, about their desires for tenement, I think I think we share a lot of the same goals there. I'm excited about public goods funding initiatives. We haven't seen a lot of this yet, but I think it is very compatible with the Cosmos political philosophy. Oh, I'm excited about collaborative finance. That's a good one. And formals, informals, collaborative finance project and circles and collaborative finance is really, to me, it is spiritually aligned with many of my philosophies of how the economic system could work. It's aligned with what Anoma aims to provide in many ways. But we already see inklings of that emerging within the cosmos. I hope that it emerges everywhere. So I'm pretty excited about those things, I would say. It's modularity, public goods funding, and collaborative finance. It's interesting you mentioned collaborative finance. I know Informal put out some work about it a few months ago. I feel like I don't think that phrase has necessarily, I don't think that's like a mainstream cosmos consciousness yet, but I feel like over the next year or two, it's something that I don't fully quite understand it myself, to be honest, but I've heard a few folks mentioning it here and there. So it's definitely something. I'm not sure it's the right name. (laughs) The word finance is too loaded. I think it's very hard to use that word in a broad context. I like sort of mutual credit networks or something a bit better because it's more specific, but we'll see. Well, Chris, really appreciate you taking the time today to talk about privacy, Anoma, Nomada, Cosmos, and you have a really interesting perspective and enjoyed chatting with and learning from you. It was my pleasure. Thank you.